0: Hello and welcome to Close Talking, the world's most popular poetry analysis podcast from Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated. I am co-host Connor McNamara Stratton and with my good friend Jack rossiter Munley, we read a poem, talk about the poem, and read the poem again.
1: Before we get into today's selection, a quick note that if you like what we do here at Close Talking and you have a spare minute, it would mean the world to us if you would give the podcast a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts.
0: Those ratings and reviews help boost us up the algorithm and find new listeners. And if you have suggestions for future
1: episodes or comments on this one, you can send us an email at poetry at
0: gmail.com. You can also find us on social media. On Twitter, the show is at talking. I'm at Connor M. Stratton, and Jack is at Jack
1: Rossiter-Munn. On Instagram, the show is at Close Talking, and on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash Close Talking.
0: And our website, where you can find all our past episodes, is CloseTalking.com.
1: On with the show.
0: Hello, and welcome to an all new episode of Close Talking. I am one of your co hosts, Connor McNamara Stratton.
1: And I am your other co-host, Jack rossiter
0: And we are greeting you in the fine month of April, National Poetry Month. Woo! And we will be having our third annual poetry week later on in April. It should be delightful. I think we'll talk about sonnets.
1: A semana of sonnets.
0: Ooh. that was
1: nice thank you i just thought of it (laughs) that's great should be the last week of april right the the last running into the 30th oh yeah that'll that'll be when the the sonnets all drop and it'll be sort of in the form of if you go back the very first of these weeks that we did was haiku week back in 2019 to close out poetry month of 2019 and it'll sort of be in that uh vein it'll be a week all about the form of the sonnet and the the various things that it can contain and be.
0: Yes, absolutely. But for now, we have a very normal episode, but our poem is absolutely incredible.
1: Well, that, that would be pretty normal for us, though, right? True, uh, that's very true. Jack. What surer sign of a normal episode than an incredible poem? I'm telling you.
0: You make a good point. <laughs> this one is a personal favorite of mine. I picked it because in our spring of covid our second spring this one had a strange resonance and it's it's the very first poem of william carlos williams spring and all which is sometimes called spring and all sometimes referred to as its first line uh, by the road to the contagious hospital But yeah, Williams was, there's actually two poems that you might know. One is the Red Wheelbarrow poem. So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens that all teachers in high school who do not like poetry give to their students and say, see, poetry sucks. Um, (laughs) Hey,
1: look, it's a poem. Deal with
0: it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But then the heavily memed, this is just to say, a plum poem where Williams has taken some plums. I ate your plums. Um, and he's You're plum out of luck. It was a very early sorry, not sorry was moment. was plum
1: foolish of me. <laughs> really plumbing the depths of uh, something.
0: Yep. Plum. Bring it all which is a very interesting book. It's it's half prose, half poetry. He's got a lot of exuberant manifesto prose vibes about the imagination. It's great. We'll talk more about that later. So um, for all
1: the, uh, the meme lords out there, are we going to say that Spring and All is sort of the meme Bible? Like this is... It's also hilarious to me that of all poems and poetry, William Carlos Williams is the one who has most inserted himself into meme culture. I feel like that's pretty great. Um, Based just on the fact that part of his poetic project was, you know, bringing American vernacular into the world of uh, poetry. The fact that that effort transcends generations and mediums and is now in the hands of readers being inserted into a whole new memetic online vernacular culture it's like this fascinating (laughs) continuation that is probably the closest that memes come to you know giving a lot of uh sentimental feelings for me (laughs) and i do i do love memes
0: oh yeah i mean we're all about memes here yeah but he was a very influential poet often thought of as part of the imagist movement, along with Ezra Pound. He was in the kind of modernist circle. He is a legend. Yeah, we can talk more after we read the poem.
1: Sounds good.
0: This is By the Road to the Contagious Hospital by William Carlos Williams. By the Road to the Contagious Hospital Under the surge of the blue mottled clouds driven from the Northeast, a cold wind. Beyond the waste of broad muddy fields, brown with dried weeds, standing and fallen patches of standing water, the scattering of tall trees. All along the road, the reddish purplish forked upstanding twiggy stuff of bushes and small trees With dead brown leaves under them, leafless vines. Lifeless in appearance, sluggish dazed spring approaches. They enter the new world naked, cold, uncertain of all save that they enter. All about them the cold familiar wind. Now the grass, tomorrow the stiff curl of wild carrot leaf. One by one objects are defined. It quickens, clarity, outline of leaf, but now the stark dignity of entrance. Still, the profound change has come upon them. Rooted, they grip down and begin to awaken. Spring. Uh, the play-by-play is it's about spring, and spring springs happens.
1: Spring sprung in, <laughs> all um, over the place. Surging spring, overtaking yeah. the waste.
0: Yes, I mean, yeah, that's pretty much all that happens. There's some some plants that are starting to grow as they do in spring
1: and the poet observing this has thoughts about spring that may include things beyond plants
0: and that's all for close talking hope you enjoyed it it. we've done it
1: again (laughs) good poem good good spring everybody get outside i don't know why you're listening to the podcast i guess you could download it and then listen to it outside get the sun on your face go look at some plants spring have fun if you're in our hemisphere obviously this is a global podcast if it's fall where you happen to be you know and we're sorry i
0: mean this podcast is not for you right now yeah sorry about that wait six we've got
1: episodes from the fall you can listen to october we have i know it's not october i mean that's still october here fall but like fall stuff
0: it's a fall yeah i mean october of the north is like april of the south
1: yeah yeah, it literally is. <laughs> it's six months away. <laughs> You've done it again. It's absolutely correct. <laughs> this poem is really cool because the play-by-play is basically, it's spring and I noticed, um, <laughs> but even reading through it, you can feel that there's a lot more to it than that. And I think at least for me, the, the, like the overriding thing that this poem does so well that I think is really interesting and I'm curious for your thoughts on is like the power of setting because a lot of this is describing the scene and you can kind of go through the poem and it's almost a shifting personal decision about where you think the scene has been set. I personally think it could extend all the way down to the beginning of the last stanza, but most clearly it's maybe the first two stanzas really give you a clear idea of where you are. But for me, there's a a bit of a difference between the scene and the setting. So the scene is like everything that's there. The setting is the iconic first line by the road to the contagious hospital, which is never mentioned again. But the reason that this poem, as you're reading it, and it is more and more and more and more and more and more and more more about spring, you know it's not just about spring because the very first line lets you know that you're on a road to the contagious, hospital. And in a book that's coming out in 1923, five years after the Spanish flu pandemic, written by a doctor, which, you know, I think most of our listeners are probably familiar, which if you're not William Carlos Williams spent most of his life as a doctor, in addition to writing, you know, genre defining poetry, he was also (laughs) a doctor. And when this book came out, He was 40, which means that he was 35 when the Spanish flu was happening. So he was a full adult and doing doctor stuff during that time. Whether or not you know that biographical information about him, the introduction right at the beginning of the poem of By the Road to the Contagious Hospital puts all of this into just a completely different perspective and gives such a different tone to it overall. But I'm, I'm interested for your thoughts kind of generally about that kind of setting in poems. And if you can think of any other examples where it is kind of this stark that the setting gives such a different shape to what the poem is doing.
0: Yeah, no, you're so right. Um, the Poetry Society of America had asked different poets to pick poems that they were returning to during the pandemic. And Ray Armantraut, who we have done a quite a difficult poem and by her, uh, she had picked this one, and, and she wrote about it a little bit, which I, which I found a helpful framing. And she kind of says, so as many of you know, Williams was a doctor. Uh, he was working in the era before antibiotics. When he says the contagious hospital, he's likely referring to a separate building or a wing for people with contagious diseases. Then as now, doctors had to expose themselves to infection and he probably saw too many patients who could not be helped. Sometimes he needed to turn his gaze elsewhere. Now that I think about it, it reminds me of Rick Barrett's poem, Child Holding Potato, which we did, which begins, when my sister got her diagnosis, I bought an airplane ticket but to another city where I stared at paintings that seemed victorious in their relation to time. And then the rest of the poem purely describes the paintings. And that one's more explicit where there's like, the speaker is sort of literally (laughs) avoiding, you know, like I'm flying elsewhere, basically, to avoid this hard news.
1: Well, some of what I find interesting is that there's this Um, almost paradoxical restraint by putting it first which i think is also true of the the rick barrett poem because i do think that like the traditional narrative impulse would be to put that reframing at the end and just like surprise your reader and then all of a sudden what they thought was going on is reframed and that can be done really effectively and interestingly but it can also make the reader or viewer the the first thing i think of is a there's this movie remember me and basically the whole movie happens and then at the end you find out that it's 9-11 <laughs> and like oh god! all of a sudden it's 9-11 so all of a sudden everything you've been watching is different and that can be really effective and powerful but it also is I think it can in the world of narrative creation become the go-to move of like oh I've got this great twist I've got this great you know hidden piece of information that I'll really surprise the audience with, and it'll keep them hooked. I'll either bring it in halfway through or towards the end or at the very end. And that'll like, Ooh, yeah, you didn't even know big reveals basically. And by putting this right at the beginning, I think it's a slightly less common move to just put something big like that out and then basically forget about it for the rest of the poem for all purposes of what we're spending time with. That's just like, the beginning throwaway, this is where we happen to be, but you're so right. And it's absolutely what Ray Armantra is pulling out, which is like, no, this is this is where the depth comes from. And the the complexity of the depth that it brings. But I do find it interesting to have it right there at the beginning and so plain. And then also so tossed aside. It is a clause that takes up one line and then we're on to spring and there's maybe echoes of it at the end when the language becomes such that you can take it and apply it not just to plants in the natural world but maybe to people as well but you know that's also not made explicit in the poem it's not like there's a line at the end as straightforward as the beginning that's like and then as i walked through the doors of the contagious hospital i remembered those plants and thought ah we shall yet again triumph over disease or something <laughs> you know like it yeah it continues down the the road of just being like yep yeah, this is where i was and that's important but also i'm looking at at spring and that's maybe just as important if not more important in different ways
0: yeah totally i i really agree with all of that yeah, and I think it, it makes me think a little to, a bit too, about the kind of the context that Williams was writing in, um, which which has also, you know, resonance to today, uh, certainly the, the pandemic, but also, you know, like World War One, had just happened. And, and then even more specifically, T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland had come out a year before, and Williams was not happy about it.
1: (laughs) Shots fired. Yeah. Shots
0: fired. He basically wrote this book as a kind of like, this is my not wasteland book. Yeah. And how Um, many
1: wasteland tweets and memes do you see these days, huh? huh? Who won that in the long run? Another big W for old WCW, I think.
0: (laughs) Totally. Um, In the introduction of, I have the book, and C.D. Wright, rest in peace, had wrote the introduction to a reprinting of Spring and All. And the other thing, too, is like this time there's a lot of really big poetry literature happening. Wall Stevens had just published his first book, Harmonium. Gene Toomer had had published Kane in the same year, I think, as this. Yeats just won the Nobel Prize. And then like Marianne Moore and Gertrude Stein were on the scene.
1: And even outside of poetry, just in literature generally, it was such a time of like major attention, focus, and flux I think that that post-World War I period where so many people in in the arts were reckoning with what what had just happened and the way that they were seeing mass produced especially, but just generally the way that they saw kind of literary and narrative arts used for evil was becoming so apparent obviously even more dramatically in the Second World War, but like putting yourself in the minds of people who care about art and literature in that era, like never before on that kind of mass-produced scale had that devastation been seen and that really freaked a lot of people out. I mean the yeah it, it's just such a, a time of like reevaluation and rethinking and and change. It's it is a, a very fertile time.
0: Which I think actually that's kind of the larger resonance that I feel. I mean I, I don't know if we're too in it right now to discern the kind of or at least I cannot discern like what, how the art that's being made right now will be, you know, categorized, but like, you know, in, in this broad sense, the modernist arts and you, cause you also have like DeChamp and like this kind of really kind of like fuck you, you know, Magritte with his not pipe pipe crap. And the you know to shop in his toilet stuff and things. I mean,
1: I think the the current era's Un tweet is basically the same situation. I think we're <laughs> dealing with a very similar kind of uh, aesthetic reframing of a priori concepts. You know,
0: this is pas the... <laughs> Un
1: tweet. Has somebody tweeted that yet? I feel like somebody. Well, actually, the that.
0: pipe the pipe has a bit of a meme life. I think. But, yeah that's true um what anyway if you put up a
1: picture <laughs> what of like a migrate painting and you're like Ce n'est pas but it's like apostrophe like you know
0: <laughs> yeah so the big paradigms and ideas and projects of the day modernist art in a broad sense was challenging in response to the horror of world war one the pandemic, and also this kind of skepticism, you know, industrialization, uh, all all these things. But then, you know, T.S. Eliot writes The Wasteland and is like, all this stuff is, he was very negative about it, but he also was very, um, I mean, I like The Wasteland, but like there's Sanskrit and Latin and it's very like elite statuesque, poetry and Williams was like seeing all of the you know literally seeing people dying from Spanish flu but that was not his response and so in some ways there is like the contagious hospital and then it's like okay for Williams this is what C.D. writes saying poetry was meant to be in motion he epitomized the prepared observer, a watcher, a listener, uh, goat stubborn, feet in the soil independent. He could write whatever, whenever, and as he damn well pleased. He was the embodiment of the values Americans touted but seemed capable of expressing only in quote, isolate flex. You know, there's a kind of Whitman quality too that he's channeling with the, the sort of, you know, you brought up the the American vernacular, and Williams was, and he he wrote about this too, like in his kind of like essays and prose about his desire to kind of find the American rhythm or whatever, and actually had some pretty weird like racial ideas about it that a lot of people did then, and it was all weird and terrible, but... Um, at any yeah, rate, <laughs>
1: he's he's not bad, but at least he's not like an outlandishly bad outlier, f- even for his time. He's like pretty in line with the badness of his era. Yes, um, exactly. Which, to be clear, is quite bad. <laughs> but, yeah. But yeah, no, yeah. He, uh, yeah. I mean, and part of I think part of the reason people really return to him a lot is because he was so explicit about what he wanted to do and his exploration of America as an idea and of the the people in America. He wrote about that a lot. And I think part of the care that he himself brought to talking and writing about doing that has built itself into why just the way that people think about him and and the reason that his work is returned to and and valued. Because a lot of it is in what it Contains, but I think because he was so clear about why he was doing what he was doing, what he liked, what he didn't like, how he was going about his work, I think that has an added layer.
0: Definitely, this is the last part that I want to mention from the intro. But um, while zealously promoting the supremacy of the imagination, he dealt in real things with individuals in real and current need. In 1923, poetry's backward advance came to the crossroads. The pediatrician from Rutherford discharged the symbolic heap of myth and metaphor, adjusted his focal length to light up, cast off common things, dug his heels into American dirt and passed directly into the moment. Ah, spring. (laughs) Um, But I think that kind of, captures a little bit which I I was reading it and then I was like kind of thinking about this poem and I was like oh yeah like there actually isn't you know there's deeper there's a lot of deeper meanings um and this is in part sort of the imagist no ideas but in things that's kind of something he wrote in Patterson I believe that's often quoted but like we can kind of say spring this regrowth is kind of a could be a metaphor for like you know what could be reborn after the contagious hospital or like the wreck of the war and the pandemic and all this crap but the symbol isn't made in the poem like the poem is really really descriptions of Plants, And not in like a, in like a really, I think, interesting way. And this is like, Ray Armandtrout points this out in her thing where she's like, at first, the plants are very fuzzy. Like you have this all along the road, the reddish purplish forked upstanding twiggy stuff of bushes and small trees. It's like all these kind of adjectives that are issues. And then it's like the stuff of bushes. But then like as spring kind of approaches and like starts to happen, there's the clarity that emerges, um, which the poem kind of, that's when it starts to get like more abstract a little bit where it's like, you know, one by one objects are defined. It quickens clarity, outline of leaf. And, And you have things like, the stiff curl of wild carrot leaf which is like more zoomed in and precise than reddish purplish forked upstanding twiggy stuff of bushes
1: (laughs) i mean it's literally like twiggy stuff
0: yeah twiggy stuff
1: i feel like the difference between twiggy stuff and (laughs) wild carrot is like vast <laughs> yeah 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 that's uh you know it's some tricky stuff by the road <laughs> reddish i guess i don't know <laughs> and it's not like there isn't already a lot of care in the language around the natural world i mean i think calling <laughs> the move from the contagious hospital to under the surge of the blue mottled clouds is like okay cool um or uh the scattering of tall trees is a nice phrasing for that and it's very evocative and clear at the same time as being poetically interesting but yeah then you get this (laughs) this stanza about the Twiggy stuff and it's like (laughs) I do like at the end of that the transition from leafless to lifeless I think that's kind of neat Mm. um it's just fun from the end of one stanza to the beginning of the next it all stays in the same kind of mode but it is a neat little thing that pops out language wise as you go through
0: yeah. And, and I just I feel the uh, the other reason is is really like we're in spring and I've just been in the U.S. The vaccines are rolling out. Obviously, our government's opened up too soon. There's now rising cases
1: in Vermont. It's the pandemic right now where I am in Vermont is basically the worst it has ever been where we've yeah. got more cases every day, more hospitalizations every day. Like in October, beginning of October, we we were at basically zero or maybe one hospitalization. Over several days, this would be the case. And now it's many. It's so disheartening.
0: No, it really is. And, you know, the variants are very scary. And so it's it's hard to say what's going to happen, but it's just been a weird spring and like kind of, I just like really resonated personally with the like description of how things are developing kind of and growing like sluggish dazed spring approaches like lifeless in appearance. Like I just sort of feel like that about myself (laughs) where I'm like, okay, we're going to get vaccinated. So I guess we're like, you know, it's not negative 20 degrees with a negative 50 wind chill. We can like start seeing people and not be so isolated, but like, uh, but then it's like they enter this new world, the new world, naked, cold, uncertain of all save that they enter, which I also feel like myself, because there's also this sense of the world has. I mean, just profoundly changed over the past year and more. It's just, it's really unclear, like, what the world will be after the pandemic.
1: That has become increasingly my sort of thought process, just even in the last week, because I think you're right. Like we're reaching a point where it is actually possible to consider what is the new normal. Interestingly, this poem did also circulate probably because of the sometimes used title and obviously the opening line. It it began to circulate a little bit last spring, but it definitely, I think, hits a little bit harder and maybe even more accurately and acutely in this second spring of COVID. Because I feel like, I don't know, I mean, you can bring whatever you want to a poem and it can have resonance for you, however it does. But I think the most natural resonance reading through this is like, if it's last spring, you are lamenting that there is not this kind of opening and this rooting and gripping down and awakening, like that's just not happening. And that's kind of how the poem hits. And then because it mentions a contagious hospital, there's a, an explicit tie into what's going on. Whereas now I feel like the contested nature of the opening and the resilience that the last stanza seems to hold like that feels more matched to this moment than last spring at least for my experience of the pandemic i can't obviously speak to anyone else's
0: yeah no i agree with that the general like kind of you know one by one objects are defined and then this rooted they grip down and begin to awaken those sort of moments of like the rush and i'm like i'm here everything's a blur twiggy stuff of bushes and then it's like okay that's a vaccine (laughs) like that's a a thing this is a thing these are knowable holdable items and then like through that kind of identifying process there's the rootedness like of the plants and i think that too the other thing in general is just like that kind of connection with earth and the outside world and attention to it and attunement to it i mean it's interesting because and this is i think one reason why i appreciate williams is like he's different from the kind of british romantic poets that that are in nature and it's this kind of sublime terrifying everything's full of meaning and like nature is this wild beast and i don't know like there's this kind of over the topness which i also like but oh it's great yeah it's, i think it's
1: great. the untamable, unknowable vast yeah. reaches of the wilderness <laughs> yeah so how how doth we fathom it we cannot <laughs> let us stand in its in its glory and despair yeah yeah it's all very fun <laughs> it, it's good stuff it's cool it's, stuff yeah it's good it's good stuff but this is this like, is this is nice <laughs> this nice is my experience of nature more often <laughs> i'll say that
0: Yeah, I mean, most of my experience with nature is twiggy stuff of bushes, like reddish, purplish. I'm like, that's as far as I can get.
1: I'm not getting spooked by mountains, you know? I'm (laughs) not like, oh no, a rocky. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, The attention to things as they are, and also the, the sense too of just like being, you know, like still the profound change has come upon them rooted they grip down and begin to awaken it's it's the rootedness that is the key obviously like in the the biological process for for plants is
1: that how they do it
0: yeah they they, it's really um those roots doing a lot of work i don't know to be an observer in this sense is is one of the I don't know the things of, of poetry that I, that I appreciate the most.
1: I like the you brain that I, I sort of think of it, <laughs> this is probably just because of what I've been watching a lot of, you know, at this stage in the pandemic, but it's sort of like, uh, the various reaches of the Marvel cinematic universe We're like, I love absolutely love Thor Ragnarok, probably one of, if not my favorite film in the franchise. However, I'm watching Falcon and the Winter Soldier and yeah there's like super soldiers and whatever but it's a much more grounded story with human characters and they're dealing with things like lack of distribution of resources because half of humanity left and then came back and they're dealing with bureaucracy and there's even storylines about using the blood of a black super soldier to then create more super soldier serum which mirrors real world horrors done to black people and it's a different kind of storytelling that opens up many different possibilities because it is more grounded in the real world they're not on the planet sakar fighting the hulk in a space arena and then zipping around on like intergalactic orgy jets you know (laughs) it's a very i i can love both but one of those (laughs) is my boy PBS, you know, <laughs> Percy Bysshe Shelley hanging out in the romantic world. And then <laughs> the other is like WCW keeping me grounded. And I think there's a lot of value in both, but you do just get such a different texture of storytelling, or in this case, just a different texture of experiencing the world that I really, really like. And I do think that this is because it focuses on nature like you can point to other examples like relationship to a deity in romantic versus you know non-romantic literature this poem in particular is a nice counterpoint to that
0: yeah absolutely and it's also it's another thing too of which of course the pandemic is its own reminder but you know the the climate crisis is another inflection point where we're where the kind of like idea that humans can just dominate nature and like use it and plunder it and extract from it and get what we need from it. And that that'll be fine <laughs> is, you know, more and more viscerally becoming obviously not true. And so there's a, I think, I don't know. I, I've also just been thinking more about that where it's work that is, is more in touch with the world as it is and its processes, um, feels like really important at this point because I think we need to be kind of developing a new imagination for how, you know, we as a society and whatever are like treating the world. And I have just like, in my head, it's uh, I think of it as Connor's first New York story because this book, Spring and All, I had, it was over the summer. I was in college. I think it may have just been, so it came out in 23, but then New Directions printed, reprinted Spring and All, but like, as it was originally, like a facsimile. And I had this very, what now is like a very formative, but also like cliche New York experience where I was like, there and then I like finished whatever I was doing and then I like went to McNally's bookstore which is this very cool bookstore in Manhattan and uh I was like you know exploring the poetry section I found this book and I was like "Ooh!" started reading it in the bookstore and then and it's I really recommend reading the whole book I, I cannot recommend it enough because the prose is is kind of wild, but it's just like very energetic and fun and like and like kind of. And then just like the the thing that it establishes is like the red wheelbarrow when it's presented by itself comes off as the most pretentious, precious poem uh, of all. But in the book, it's just like he's just dashing these poems off, basically and anyway then i was like okay i gotta buy this this is this is good and then i just read it on the train i think i took the queue up to astoria where i was staying with some friends the um, train line great train line and i was reading it on the train and i just was like that's the whole story it's just me reading spring and all on the train and i i read the book probably in like one like extended sitting because it goes by pretty quickly but it's also it's just it was like captivating and like energizing and i was like whoa i don't know it was one of the times when i was like poetry has got something for me uh in like a deep way and a way that i want for myself like on my own like independent of okay of all the dumb classes i have to take in in school Poetry is probably the coolest of those, the least dumb.
1: <laughs>
0: As everyone thought, I know. <laughs> I know, I was a fool. I didn't realize it, but... No, um... but
1: still, I mean, those are important realization points where you're doing it just for you, and then you think, oh, wait a minute, there's something here that's like, I'm having a different feeling than I do when I read, yeah. you know, a history book or a play or whatever. Cause like, you know, you can have lots of interests, but sometimes one of them suddenly hits you a little bit differently. And that's, that can be an important moment.
0: Yeah, exactly. And it was very like New York in the sense that I was like on the train, I was like reading this amazing book and then I would look up and I was like all these random people going about their lives and I'm being transformed before their eyes and they have no idea and then like you know the queue like goes above ground in this magnificent way um and you can you know see queens and see brooklyn and see manhattan yeah it was pretty cool that's Um, very neat should we read it again
1: i think we should let's hear it
0: all right this is By the Road to the Contagious Hospital by William Carlos Williams. By the road to the contagious hospital, under the surge of the blue mottled clouds driven from the Northeast, a cold wind. Beyond the waste of broad muddy fields, brown with dried weeds, standing and fallen, patches of standing water scattering of tall trees all along the road the reddish purplish forked upstanding twiggy stuff of bushes and small trees with dead brown leaves under them leafless vines lifeless in appearance sluggish dazed spring approaches they enter the new world naked cold uncertain of all save that they enter. All about them, the cold familiar wind. Now the grass tomorrow, the stiff curl of wild carrot leaf. One by one objects are defined. It quickens clarity outline of leaf, but now the stark dignity of entrance still The profound change has come upon them. Rooted, they grip down and begin to awaken. So, Jack, uh, what have you been uh, watching, or reading, or listening, or consuming? or absorbing uh, in the um, cultural uh, landscape as it were.
1: Well, I wish you'd asked any other question because unfortunately on advice of legal counsel, I am being uh, told that I should refuse to answer on the grounds it may incriminate me. Wow. Pleading? That, no, just kidding. Um,
0: Have you been on the piratebay.org torrenting?
1: can neither confirm nor deny the ways in which (laughs) I watch movies that are not available on streaming services I subscribe to or tennis matches Uh, (laughs) this is something that I've been really joyfully I don't know if joyfully is the right word but just something that I really appreciate which is the newsletter men yell at me by the journalist Liz Lenz Um, I first became aware of her when she wrote what I firmly maintain, and in fact, regularly mention on Twitter is the best profile anyone's ever written of Tucker Carlson in the history of the world. It opens with the immortal line, Tucker Carlson is shouting when he tells me he isn't shouting. And it just gets better (laughs) from that point on. And she has a newsletter that comes out regularly. There's a, you can pay to get it more often to get more editions of it. It's through Substack. Um, And there's also you can sign up and get it for free. She's written some really excellent books as well. But her newsletter, this last edition of it, at least at the time of recording, was about ways that she has dealt with online harassment and stalking and threats and doxing attempts and that sort of stuff and she talked with someone who I know I have recommended the work of before Talia Lavin who wrote Culture Warlords who has had to deal with this and uh she talked to her both because obviously women who write are most frequently the victims of this but also because it's something that Talia who reports on the extreme right has had to deal with quite a bit but not only that latest edition though I highly highly recommend that anyone listening, go and read that because it just gives you such a window into what journalists have to deal with, especially through online harassment that becomes real-world fear and real-world danger and how how that has to be dealt with. But just almost everything she writes, she's an incredibly gifted writer. She puts so much work into her reporting, just has a perspective that I, I think has really enriched my understanding of <laughs> existence, basically. So I recommend the Men Yell At Me newsletter from Liz Lenz. Okay. So that's my recommendation, but Connor, what have you been osmosing, experiencing, dwelling in, reading, watching, listening to? What's, uh, what's fueling the Stratton fire today?
0: Well, let me tell you, Jack. Um, I'm late to this party, but I don't often get a chance to watch horror movies, partly because I don't love them most of the time. And also because my lovely partner, Sarita, really doesn't care for them. But the other night I watched *Midsummer*, and that movie is on fire. It is so good.
1: It's incredibly Uh, good. Yes.
0: It's very good. It is is one of the few horror movies in my humble opinion that has a good ending. And there's just crazy things going on. It makes very good use of the human voice and the scary things that happen when a lot of people are making sounds from their mouth. Um, The colors are wild. Proto white European pagan stuff is creepy and great and weird. And Florence Pugh is amazing and does, like, kills that role. And, uh, yeah, watch that movie. So good. It's it's excellent.
1: I have watched it.
0: <laughs> but okay. I will
1: watch it again. I've actually been thinking about seeing it again because I'm very similarly, I don't usually do horror, but I don't know what possessed me. I just, I sat down with it and I was like, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> and yeah. I've been wanting to rewatch it